This is, this is Palm Sunday. This is the day we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. The events that unfolded in the week after that triumphant entry led to the turning point of world history. The turning point of world history. Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ. And then Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. It was a week of anticipation. It was a week of anticipation, even though right up until the final hours, there was confusion about why Jesus came. There was confusion about why and how the events would unfold. Even though Jesus, throughout his earthly life, forecasted his own death and resurrection, several times there was still confusion, even amongst his closest followers. There was belief that Jesus had come to be a political ruler, elevating the social standing of the Jewish people. Even some who were very close to Jesus were hoping that as a result of following him, that they might have like a cabinet level position once Jesus became that ruler. His mission was, of course, much greater than to become a political leader. We understand it now. We understand it now. Because the four gospel accounts and the book of Acts reveal the resurrection of Christ and the launch of the first century church under the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the privilege of reading it as events that have occurred in the past. Well, we have clarity about Christ's first coming. Today, there is confusion about his return. Fast forward 2,000 years after Palm Sunday, the death and resurrection of Christ. Today, we have clarity about Christ's first coming. There is confusion about his return. Well, why, why would you say that there, why would I say that there's confusion about Christ's return? It's right there in the Bible. It's plain to see. It's laid out in places like 1 Thessalonians. We say there is confusion. I say there is confusion tonight because as we look at the world around us, the world is not living like Christ is coming back. If you go to your workplace tomorrow, if you're back at your workplace, we know many have uh, gone back now after months and months of being working at home, uh, you would not say as you look at all your coworkers, this is a place where everyone's living like Christ is coming back. Those of you who are in school, high schools and colleges, if you were to walk around your high school campus, there's a high probability that you, when you walk around the halls of your school, you wouldn't say, man, looking around here, people are really living like Jesus is coming back. There is confusion about the return of Christ. The question for us tonight as the church, if someone were to walk into this place and they watch how we live, would they be able to tell that we are a people who are living like Christ is coming back? We can look at the disciples, the first followers of Christ, and it's easy for us to kind of look at them and say, well, how come you didn't get it? How come you didn't get who Jesus was? How come you didn't understand it, even though he forecasted what was to come? How come you didn't get it? Yet here we are today, and it might be said of us that there are Christ followers, people who would say, I am a Christian, perhaps even a majority of people who would say that they're followers of Christ, who are really not living like Christ is coming back. So this is where we rejoin and actually reach the conclusion of our Sunday evening series on 1 Thessalonians, Foundations for a Healthy Life. 
There are five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, and tonight we're in chapter 5. We're about to receive encouragement and practical instruction from Paul. I just absolutely cherish it when the Bible gives us real, practical, easy-to-grasp instruction on how to live out being a Christian. So tonight we're about to receive encouragement and practical instruction from Paul on how to live like Jesus is returning because he is. How to live like Jesus is returning because he is. Paul is going to challenge us as followers of Christ to live like Jesus is returning because he is. And tonight we're going to actually begin almost at the very end of this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, real church, real place, real moment in history. We're going to begin at the end of the letter to the church in Thessalonica. We're about to see what Paul told the first century Christians to do when they got this letter. So Paul sent the letter to the church in Thessalonica and Paul concludes the letter with this instruction, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 27. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. (laughs) So someone in the church in Thessalonica received a letter from Paul and they opened it up and read it just to make sure whoever read the letter first, this isn't just for you. Paul says, I charge you to read what's in this letter to the brothers and sisters. Let the church know what I've said. So, okay, Paul, we've been doing that for the last four weeks, and we will conclude tonight. We're going to do just what Paul told us to do. We are reading the letters to all the brothers and sisters. So as we begin looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you can open up, power up 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, reading the NIV version tonight if you can choose. Uh, Let's start with Paul answering the question, well, if we're supposed to live like Jesus is returning, when is Jesus coming back? When is this event going to occur? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, about about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It was actually Jesus himself who said, it's not for you to know the time or the date. That's determined by our Heavenly Father. So church in Thessalonica, church in Salem, just in case you have any uh, lingering questions about when this is going to occur, (laughs) it's not for you to know. That is determined by our Heavenly Father. About the time and date, Paul would say, why are you even asking the question? The timing is for God to know. And by the way, God's timing continues to be perfect. Now, some of you, I don't want to take for granted that everyone has heard about the second coming of Christ. And I come to this from a position of transparency and honesty with you. You see, I was about a year out of college, living in southeast Minnesota, working for a TV station, when a friend in Austin, Minnesota, has anyone been to Austin, Minnesota, by the way? You've been there. You grew up in Austin, Minnesota. Wow. So you would know the answer to this question. Austin, Minnesota is famous for making what product? Hormel Foods, and the main product that comes out of Austin, Minnesota, Hormel plant is spam. Spam. That's right. I gave my life to Christ in the same city where they make spam. 
some of about a year out of college, and uh, I gave my life to Christ at this uh, church in Austin, Minnesota, very special place, Cornerstone Church, Cornerstone Assembly of God. And in the months that followed, the pastor of that church, Dave Simerson, uh, as I've grown in my faith and grown in being involved in church community, I have grown in my appreciation for what this pastor did for me. Uh, once a week on Wednesday mornings, Pastor Dave would meet me at the Windmill Restaurant and we would uh, look at the word together and he discipled me in those early days of me being a follower of Christ. And in one of those very first conversations, uh, Dave just kind of dropped in there uh, something about Jesus returning and I was like, wait, what? What? See, I had grown up a Christian. I had grown up going to church, but maybe I was just asleep at that day or didn't attend youth group that night, but I had never grasped this concept about Jesus coming back. Uh, so Jesus' first coming, it was the great act of humility. Jesus born to Mary in Bethlehem, placed in a manger. When Jesus comes a second time, that's not how it will be. When Jesus returns, he will come down in power, the word tells us, with the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ shall rise by Christ's followers who are alive at the time. There will be no question about what is happening at that moment. So maybe this is only for one person who's here tonight. It's possible that this is the first time that you're hearing about the return of Christ. And I understand that's a lot to get your mind around. For many of us, we would say we have known this for years or even decades. So the obvious follow-up question is, well, when will this happen? And God is the one who knows the time. Second Peter first, chapter 3, verse 14, the patience of our God means salvation. As we're wondering about the time, we went, well, why is God waiting? The patience of our Lord means salvation. As God is patient, more and more people have an opportunity to hear about Christ. God is patient for that reason. It's not our role to know the time of Christ's return. It's our job to trust, seek, and have faith in the Heavenly Father who sets the time. It's our job to have faith in the one who sets the time. The day of the Lord is coming. That's the day of the Lord means there is a day coming when God is going to intervene in what's happening in this world. The visual picture of a thief in the night is a powerful one. We're told that this is going to happen like a thief in the night. Well, what does a thief do? A thief removes what he desires and values the thief removes that from one place and brings it to another place for his own purposes without the owner's permission. A thief. A thief. Around Christmas time, we had some Amazon packages on our front door. They were stolen by someone. A thief. They don't even know what's in the box. They just stole the box. Boxes. If that was you, you need to repent. <laughs> I also want you to know that we have video cameras now. And if you do it again, I'll put your picture on the internet. <laughs> A thief removes what he desires and values and brings whatever that is that he desires and values to another place, and this happens without the owner's permission. 
the owner. Jesus called Satan the enemy, the prince of this world. Jesus is coming back and he's not asking the prince of this world for permission. Jesus is coming for what he desires and values, those who trust him to be saved from their sins. And Jesus is bringing believers to another place like a thief in the night, the night, darkness. In a letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul called this a dark world, spiritual darkness. Jesus is returning to the dark world and he is pulling the believers out. Now, some people today think that they have come up with some, they're revolutionary. They've come up with a new way of thinking. They think that, it's a, that they're in, the enlightened ones that no one else has figured out before, that they reject Christ. They call it foolishness and fairy tales. Please, if, 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 if that's your view, you've not just come up with this. This line of thinking is nothing new. Versions of this type of objection and rejection have come up since the beginning. And Paul actually addresses this line of thinking in verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. If you were or are a rejecter or objector to the message of Christ, what would you tell people? What would you convince yourself or what would you try to convince others? You have nothing to worry about. It's not going to happen. You're safe. Just be at peace. Paul urges us, do not listen to those voices. Because if you are convinced by them, you, along with them, will experience a destruction that they don't see coming and they cannot escape. Verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. We don't know when Christ is coming back, but it's not going to be a surprise. It's not going to be a surprise. It's going to occur. We don't know when, but it's also not going to be a surprise. Before you and I, we could track every movement of a package coming to our door with an app. Some of you remember this. Um, you used to get a catalog in the mail. And you would go through the catalog, right, Sears, JCPenney. You'd go through the catalog... You would select what you want to purchase, and there were two ways to buy. Correct me if I'm wrong. You could call a 1-800 number, and you'd give the product. Or you could fill out a card and place it in the mail. You knew that that product was coming, but without the convenience of all the um, features that we have today, you didn't know when it was coming, but you knew it was coming. And if you really wanted whatever was coming, you would check your mailbox every day. You would check the front door. Is it here? Is it here? You knew it was coming, but you didn't know when. And when it finally arrived, that new sweater, it was a great day. You knew it was coming, but it wasn't a surprise when it arrived. The day you didn't know, but the arrival was not a surprise. We do not know when Christ is coming, but when he does, it will not be a surprise. We live in a world where there is spiritual darkness, but that's not how it will be forever. Why? Verse 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. Followers of Christ, we do not belong to the darkness. Remember what we said about Jesus coming like a thief in the night? Some of you may have been bothered by this, like are we calling Jesus a criminal? 
No, Jesus is not stealing. Jesus is taking back what's his. Once you have declared Jesus as your savior, you do not belong to the night. As Paul said, we do not belong to the night or the darkness. Jesus is coming back for you. If you were, through some incredible set of circumstances, to be held captive in a foreign country, and you're in some dark, damp prison uh, in some foreign country being held, uh, and it seems like there's no way of escape, you are believing that someday SEAL Team 6 is going to come in through the walls, come in through the ceiling, and take you out. They're not stealing you. They're taking you back to where you belong. Verse 6, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. People around you, they may be convinced and they have tried to convince you that the return of Christ is not going to happen. Paul Paul responds, don't be asleep like them, be awake and alert. Christ followers, awake, alert, sober. Awake, alert, sober. The opposite of awake, alert, sober is asleep and drunk. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. When a person is drunk or intoxicated, their mental awareness and physical alertness is diminished. The alcohol in the body overtakes the mind, and people do things that they would never do when they are sober. Some of you would say, been there, done that, wish that I could erase some things that I did in my past when I was under the influence. This is a warning to not become intoxicated with this world to the point that we would be disconnected from God's purposes. We can be intoxicated with the pursuits and pleasures of this world. Impairment, that's the word that we use when we think about drunk drivers. We can be intoxicated with the pursuits and pleasures of this world, impairing our ability to be awake, alert, and sober as we anticipate Christ's return. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. As a follower of Christ, you don't belong to the darkness anymore. You belong to the light. Paul, he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, and he also wrote about this theme of the armor of God in that letter to Ephesians. Perhaps uh, you as a child, you, you uh, sketched this out or you did a craft with the armor of God. Maybe your kids have recently brought home this type of craft. Uh, there is a, re- a smaller version of the armor of God here in this letter to the Thessalonians. Paul talks about uh, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, the hope of salvation as a helmet. The breastplate In ancient times, the breastplate was a piece of armor soldiers wore on their chest during the battle. What did that protect? The heart, the heart and other organs here. Faith and love protect the heart. Faith, trusting that you have a future home with Christ. Faith, love, putting the needs of others above your own. Doing these things protects your heart from being sucked back into the darkness helmet. The helmet protects the brain, the mind. 
If you played sports, sometimes they call your helmet your brain bucket. The helmet protects the mind. The hope of salvation is the knowledge that you are protected from the punishment or wrath of sin and that you will be with Christ forever. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now last week, Pastor spoke about how there was a lot of worry in Thessalonica about what would happen to those who had already died their physical death. Paul once again assures the people who had Christian loved ones who had already died their physical death. Verse 10, he died, Christ died, so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning those who had died their physical death, we may live together with him. Whether you are currently alive or you have died your physical death, if your faith is in Christ, the result is the same. Because you are trusting or because you have made a decision to trust Christ, you will be together with him for eternity. So what do we do with this information? Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, keep on doing what you're doing. In a world where so many people want to divide and fuel the disputes, as followers of Christ, Paul challenges us to be different. In a time of discouragement, be an encourager. When others are all about tearing each other down, instead build each other up. Then Paul, he gives a little love to the pastors in Thessalonica. Verses 12 and 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul encourages people to pay attention to regard what the spiritual leaders and the pastors are teaching. Pay attention, he says, to those who care for you spiritually and to and admonish you. Admonish means to warn, to advise, to urge to do the right thing or to counsel. Maybe if you've gone through a difficult medical time in your life or you're going through something right now, you've met with a doctor who's diagnosed you and given you some sort of instructions. Take this medication. Don't put too much weight on the knee. Take it easy. Cut out the sugar, cut out the junk food. Hard to do. And then the doctor gives you a warning. If you don't make the change, the injury is going to get worse. You'll be at greater risk. The chances of a heart attack go up. And if you're reluctant to follow the doctor's advice, someone who loves you may say, please listen to the doctor's warnings. Please listen to the doctor's warnings. Just as that's true medically, Paul is urging us to listen to our spiritual leaders. When we gather for Bible preaching or teaching, there are three steps. Hear it, test it, do it. Hear it, test it, do it. Hear the message. If there's any doubt, test that message against scripture to make sure it's in alignment with the Bible. And if that message is in alignment with scripture, do whatever was taught in the message. Now, How often do we stop at the second step? We hear the message. Man, that was good. Pastor was slinging the biblical truth. We laughed, we cried, we shouted hallelujah, we shouted amen. Well, did you do what pastor told you to do? Nope. 
Paul is very simply saying, if what your pastors are teaching you, it's a, if it's in a line with scriptures, do what they are encouraging you to do. That brings us to the part where Paul lays out that promised portion that I said when Paul is going to tell us how to practically live like Jesus is returning because he is. These are easy to understand. They are more challenging to live out. This is so good because Paul tells us how to live like Jesus is returning because he is. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. That's the first one. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Paul, remember, is speaking first and foremost to Christians, and he's talking about how people who follow Christ should interact with each other. Warn those who are idle or disruptive. Warn those who insist on holding their own opinion or preference, even when it is at odds with the Bible. You need to warn those people. Encourage the disheartened. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be a positive force in those who lack confidence or those who are tempted to return to sin. This may be part of your own life story or it may be someone who you know. They are a follower of Christ, but they have that weak spot. And every time they're tempted, they drift back into it. They get sucked back into it. And it's kind of up and down. Paul says, when you think about those people, be their encourager. Be a positive force. Encourage them. Help them. Be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Paul challenges us to be in relationship with imperfect people. Would you please have a Christian relationship with someone who's imperfect? Be patient with them. Be patient with imperfect people. Be patient through the imperfections. We are thankful when people are patient with us because in case we didn't know it, we're also imperfect. Be challenged to be patient with imperfect people. Verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Mom and dad used to tell us Two wrongs do not make a right. Two wrongs do not make a right. As you come in this place tonight, you may be thinking about how you can get back at someone for what they did to you. You've worked it through your mind. It's unfair. You were overlooked. You were embarrassed. And you've come up with a really good plan at how to get back at them. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But you've got a good plan at how to get back at them. You know, we can waste a lot of time coming up with plans on how to get back and get even. Paul says instead, what if all that energy that you're generating, thinking about how to get back and get even, what if you were to redirect that energy? What if you were to refocus that and instead do this, strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. Strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else great questions that we can ask ourselves, we can test ourselves in this area, is what I'm about to do going to be good for everybody involved? When I do what I'm thinking about doing, is it going to be good for everyone who is involved? Or how about this? 
is what I'm about to do, is it going to be good for my household? Is what I'm about to do, is it going to be good for my organization? Is what I'm about to do, is it going to be good for my neighborhood? And if the answer is no, then what we're probably doing is working up a plan to repay a wrong with a wrong. Instead, Paul says, strive to do what is good. Verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As we are talking about how to live like Jesus is returning, Paul says rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. To rejoice always is to say, my joy is not going to be determined by my circumstances. My joy is going to be determined by my Savior. And my circumstances are going to change. So if my joy is dependent upon my circumstances, it's going to be impossible to rejoice always. But you know what? My Savior does not change. And when my joy is linked to my Savior, then it's fully possible for me to live in a state of rejoicing no matter what may come my way. Pray continually. Pray continually. Now, there are some things that are the customs or the posture of prayer, like folding your hands, folding your eyes. That's not what Paul is saying. Not to, you know, especially if you're driving, keep your eyes on the road. It's not to do the customs of prayer always. It's to live in communication with God. Live in communication with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's those little moments. Sometimes you can say it out loud to yourself. Sometimes you have to... Just quietly process, okay, God, what do you need me to do right now? Living in communication with your heavenly Father. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. That doesn't mean we're thankful for everything. It means that we live in a state of gratitude. God, you know what has just been laid on my plate. You know what just has been dropped on my doorstep. You know what that coworker just said to me. And you know what? I'm not thankful for what they just said, but I'm thankful that you're the one who's in charge. I'm thankful that you saw what happened and that you are already working on it. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. How to live like Jesus is returning because he is. Do not quench the spirit. Through the Holy Spirit and being connected to the Holy Spirit, our relationship becomes deeper with God. Through the Holy Spirit, we receive discernment. We see a situation, and the Spirit gives us wisdom on how to act, how to respond. The Spirit also motivates us to take steps of faith, acts of faith, outside of our comfort zone. We're able to do things through the power of the Holy Spirit that we never could do on our own. Paul says, don't quench that Spirit. Don't quench that Spirit. To quench the spirit is to doubt, to ignore, or to reject what the spirit is telling us to do. Verses 20 through 22. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all. Prophecy is encouragement that is in alignment with God's word. 
any prophetic statement must line up with God's word. We can test it. If it doesn't line up with God's word, then it's not from him. Prophecy is encouragement that is in a line with God's word. Now, contempt means to despise, disrespect, or disobey. So test the prophetic statements against God's word, and if they are in alignment with God's word, then they should not be despised, disrespected, or disobeyed, Paul says. Reject evil of every kind. Reject evil of every kind. If it's not from God, it's not good, and Paul says it should be rejected. How does God respond to us when we live anticipating Christ's return? Verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. This is so encouraging because we go through all these, these points, all these things that Paul says, if you want to live like Jesus is returning, this is what you do. And we're going through those things, and like I said, they're easy to say out loud. Some of these things are really challenging to live out, really challenging. But Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. God does not just say, here you go, do it all on your own. Paul encourages us and says, allow God to do this work through you. Allow your heavenly father through the power of the Holy Spirit to shape you in this, per, in this area. Areas where you say, man, I don't know if I could do that. That's a struggle for me. I don't know if I could go up to somebody and warn them when they're being selfish and their desires or their positions are not aligned with God. I don't know if I could be bold enough to go and say something to them. I don't know if I could, if I could do that. I don't know if I, I can always reject this. I don't know, Paul says, Allow your heavenly father to work in you. Allow him to shape you. Don't quench the spirit. Allow the spirit to be your encourager. Allow the Holy Spirit to give you that discernment. We don't have to do this on our own. Live like Jesus is coming back because he is. We can get comfortable with inaction because we don't know when Christ is returning. What Paul challenges Christians to do, it may sound difficult, but what if we knew? What if we knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow? Then all the, if we knew that we knew that we knew that he was coming back tomorrow, then all these things that Paul says we're supposed to do, they become a lot easier because we become a lot less worried about our reputation and we actually get about the work that God has called us to do. But we hold back because we think that well, it could be years, it could be decades, so I'm going to hold back. But if we knew that we knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow, then these action steps become so much easier. If we knew that we knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow, we'd worry a lot less about what people think. And we would actually go out and warn those who are idle and disruptive. We would encourage the disheartened. We would be patient with everyone. We would rejoice always. We would pray continuously. We would give thanks in all circumstances. We would seek the Holy Spirit, not quench the Spirit. We would not despise or disobey prophecy. We would actively seek prophecy. We would be eager to hold on to what is good and what is from God. And we would be quick 
and we would be ready to wipe out any evil from our life what is not from God. So, church, we may not be able to do a whole lot about everyone everywhere, but we can do something about our faith community. May we be challenged as a church community if people were to come into our environment, and man, we, we are thankful. Every single Wednesday and Sunday, pastor, we are seeing people who are drawn to this place because the spirit is present here. The word is being preached here. And what we, yeah, we can clap for that. A little wake up as we've been sitting for a while, right? People are, people are coming here. And what we hear is that people sense something different is happening in this place. It is our prayer and it is our desire that when people come to people's church, they may not understand it yet, but when they do, they would say, you know, that is a faith community where people are living like Jesus is returning. And as we go through these things, the, you have the list there. If you took notes tonight, you can take that home with you. It's not a checklist, done that, done that, done that. What Paul is describing, it's not a checklist. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. To strive to live our life each and every day like Christ could return at any moment because he could return at any moment. Let me invite the worship team to return as we begin to close tonight. And let me ask you, encourage you just to begin to have a moment of response time. And for you, what this may mean is, is closing your eyes and reflecting on what God's word has spoken tonight. In a relatively short amount of time, we have gone through a lot. We've packed a lot into these last several minutes here about how Paul has, has challenged us to live like Christ is returning. To live with people who are fully aware that the moment of Christ's return is gonna happen like a thief in the night. We're not gonna get a phone call or an email saying it's gonna to happen tomorrow. It's not how God has chosen for this to work. He wants us to live ready continuously. May I ask you right where you are, if you're able, would you be willing to stand with me for just a moment? As the worship team gets ready to sing, I want to ask this question. Is there any point that we talked about tonight? And I'd say there's a high probability, if you're like me, there's more than one point, where you would say, when it comes to living like Christ is returning, there are areas that I want to improve in my life. And perhaps even I've allowed my mind and my heart to become intoxicated with the pursuits and the pleasures of this world. And so for you tonight, if you're anything like me, you'd say, God, I want you to remove any intoxication, I'm not talking about alcohol tonight, intoxication or impairment of the world's pursuits and pleasures, anything that has gotten in the way of me being able to be fully awake, 
alert and sober to be ready for Christ's return. And as Paul said, that we can allow our Heavenly Father to sanctify us, to work in us through and through, to continue to develop us to be awake, alert, and sober for Christ's return. So how many of us in this room tonight, we would say, there are areas where I would like to grow. I would like to become more like Christ. I want to improve in my position on being ready for Christ's return. My hand is up. How many are others? Thank you. Hands up all over the room. As an act of sealing this moment, as the worship team begins to play, I'm gonna ask you if you'd be willing to come and step down to this altar and worship the Lord as an act of sealing to say, God, shape me. Remove any intoxication from me. Remove any impairment. Remove any spiritual drunkenness from me that is hindering my ability to be awake, alert, and sober living like Christ is returning because I know that I know that I know that he's coming back. Hallelujah. As the worship team begins to sing, if you want to seal that moment tonight, I invite you to come down to this altar. If you're coming from closer to the front, come all the way to the front so there's room for as many who want to come. And of course, observe the social distancing in the way that you choose to tonight. But as many who want to, I invite you to come and respond to what God is doing in your heart tonight, saying, I want to be a person who lives like Jesus is coming back.